Welcome to Book Tour, two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. This week, we have our first interview of 2019, and I am very excited both about the prospect of doing our first interview of many this year and of this guest. Yeah, dude. Um, anybody who's listened to any of the most recent episodes know who we're talking about, so there's no need to be vague. We're going to be talking with Les Edgerton. Um and before we dive right into the interview, we want to give you a little knowledge about Les, but every bio that we can locate is like at least as long as the memoir that we reviewed recently. So um, just a little bit about Les. He has had a storied life. Um, we know him as an author of, uh, what is it, like it's over 20 books or close to 20 books? Somewhere in the teens, I think, yeah. Yeah, close to 20 books, uh, two of which we've reviewed. Uh, but there's a lot more about Les. Um beyond that as well sure so i'm gonna there's nine paragraphs to the amazon bio i know rob knows this it sounds like i'm telling rob but he already knows this but uh all right les edgerton has published uh 18 and i believe this to be just a little outdated so i think it's 19 books including adrenaline junkie but let's see other than that rob what else has he done he was in prison he yep. was in at least one porn movie uh he was a hairstylist who a uh, state champion hairstylist yeah. Um, and a variety of things. You really should go back a couple of episodes and listen to Adrenaline Junkie, where we spent like probably 40 minutes talking about his life because we talked about the memoir. Yeah. So, uh, but that wasn't enough. We uh, we thought we wanted to get him on. And, and, and what we didn't say in the review is that there are certain things that we specifically didn't talk about about the memoir because we knew that it was likely we would have him on, that we could kind of dig into some other stuff so we gave you part of the show but not the whole show and now you're going to get uh even new fresh content directly from the author so i'm very excited about that i am too um this could go off the rails rather quickly though so word of warning there there will be a lot of uh i don't know about a lot but there will be talk about um sex violence crime hairstyling it's going to be a crazy crazy interview yeah Without further ado, here is our interview with Les Edgerton. Les, thanks for joining us, man. I'm really excited about this. We've known you for a long time, but this is the first time we've had a chance to to talk on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. And call me in a sober day. <laughs> good, good. Um, actually, that's funny. I was uh, preparing to, to get on this call, and I had a beer that someone give, had given to me, and I was like, oh, let's drink this one, and it fizzed up all over the place and uh, ended up not being good. So I went with a, like a sparkling water instead. So you caught, like we caught me on a sober day too. Um, uh, the reason that we're uh, interviewing you right now is because you just recently released your uh, memoir, Adrenaline Junkie. Um, and obviously that begs the question, what made you decide to write a memoir? Well, I'd written it actually a version of it about 10 years ago and had it sold to a university press, University of North Texas Press. And some things happened. They pulled it and I lost the deal. So it sat in a drawer until I decided to go ahead and, you know, bring it up to date somewhat and re-release it. Uh, HBO wanted to take it at that time. So it was kind of a bummer when they uh, they pulled the, the publishing deal and uh Hopefully, maybe HBO will get interested in it again. I'm hoping, but probably not. Hey, I'm sorry. A HBO, like home box office, like the TV channel? Yeah, HBO Films. Oh, wow. 
Well, wow, I did not know what that happened was I was writing screenplays at the time and I was out in Hollywood uh, staying with my manager uh, and uh, I, I had just sold the uh, adrenaline junk. It was called something else then. It was called my secret life because I didn't let people know about my background in those days. And uh, I happened to have it with me because I was doing edits. I had just sold it and uh, Paul Bennett, my manager, asked if he could read it. And I said, yeah. So I gave it to him and uh, he stayed up all night reading it. If you know anything about agents and managers in Hollywood, they don't read anything. They, they're just not readers. Uh, they say they do, but they, they hire people to do that for them. But he's, he came to me the next morning. He says, Les, I couldn't go to sleep. I stayed up all night and read this. I love this. Do you mind if I show it to my best friend who happened to be the president of HBO? And the background there is Paul uh, he had retired as a vice president of HBO. He's the guy that created the uh, comedy release specials way back when. You're probably not old enough to remember those. And then he retired and became a manager. And his best friend was the president. And I said, are you kidding me? I'll drive you over. Anyway, he messengered my uh, script. <laughs> and uh, he, that guy stayed up all night. I don't remember his name, but he called Paul the next day and he says, I could not put it down. I stayed up all night to read it, da-da-da. He said, the way he described it, he said, this is permanent midnight, but with balls. And permanent midnight with the Jerry Stahl thing, <laughs> which I always thought mm -hmm. was a snooze guy. You know, I got driven to uh, Coke because I had this bazillion dollar gig, but I couldn't stand it because I was lowering my whatever credentials or whatever. Anyway, uh, so he, he wanted to know if it was getting published. And I said, yeah, it was because it was at the time. He said, good, we want to wait till it comes out, get some legs, sell some copies, get some reviews, maybe some awards and stuff. And then we want it. He said, don't even show it to anybody else, he told Paul. So I go home and I'm all, you know, excited and everything. I got a movie deal now, the word, you know, the handshake deal. So anyway, about a week after I get back home, I, I quit getting uh, uh, calls, my calls returned from my editor. And he just went silent on me. And uh, so finally, I get a hold of the press and get a hold of him. He says, oh, you don't have a contract. And I said, what? And it's a big deal for university press. You have to get all five regions on the Board of Regents to sign off on and all this stuff. It's a big rigmarole to get a book published. At least it was in those days. So I, what had happened, my, the publisher and my editor had both re, uh, my publisher had retired. And my editor had resigned and gone to the University of Iowa, where she, she became the managing editor there. So I got on the phone and called her at Iowa, and she said, well, I've been expecting your call. Uh, this guy did this to everybody we signed. He's getting rid of everybody. He wants to create his own stable. He's got a little ego problem. So I said, oh, shit. She said, I couldn't find my contract. My bookkeeping uh, system is pretty screwed. And she <laughs> says, don't worry. I've got a copy. If you want it, I'll send it to you. Because you do have a copy and they are obligated to publish it. But she says, do you want someone to publish it doesn't want to? And I said, well, I guess not. So uh, I stuck it in a drawer and forgot it. And I had an agent at the time, eight, uh, agents different than a manager. And he, he was sure we'd, we'd sell something else and resell it to a big five or big six at the time. Well, it never happened. He got drummed out of the business and everything. And as years went on, I just sat in a drawer and sat in a drawer until I finally said, I, I got to get this thing out. I'm going to, I'm 75 now. I need this time to get it out there. So that's kind of, that's a long way version of what happened. 
think that's one of the things that um, and we've talked about this on the podcast with other guests, the 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 frustration of you um, working your art, for lack of a better term, and then it being dependent on so many different things for it to get like if a guy paints a painting, if the painting is done and, and anybody can look at it. Um, especially now with the internet and stuff. And it gets tough because you've got, like you said, there's an agent, sometimes there's a manager, then there's a there's a publisher, and then there's other things that go on at the publisher. And so many people have to have their fingers in your work yep. um, before it can be seen widely that it's got to be just, just terrible. We talk about sometimes where someone gets a book deal and we're really excited for them, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's coming out in 2021. Yeah. You go, Jesus, that's a long time to wait for something that you've you know poured blood, sweat, and tears into. Uh, I've had so many things that negative things happen to me in publishing. I I, I need to write another book about all those things. <laughs> an expo an expose <laughs> on the publishing industry. Yeah. That would be interesting. Yeah. There was a whole thing about your book Bomb, right? There yeah. was uh, a lot of kind of similar publishing, like big things were going to happen and then they fell through. Uh, if I remember, yeah. Random House took that in auction, and auction was a big deal. And uh, we had to post as my first novel because nobody wants to auction a book that's your second novel. No, it's a big ego thing that publishers are into. They all want to discover the guy, but they don't want his second book. Well, it's my, actually my <laughs> third book, but my agent hid that from him. And they gave, we, uh, it came down to St. Martin's and Random House. So St. Martin's offered me 50000 as an advance, and Random House offered me forty five. And I went with biggest mistake of my life. I went with Random House, which is a huge mistake. But I went with them because they're Random House and nobody else is. And uh, so we signed the contract. They assigned me an editor, uh, Scott, somebody. I forget his name now, thankfully. And uh, I, I went through eight major rewrites with this guy. And then finally what happened is Random House got sold to uh, – uh, God, who was it? Uh, I can't think of the press now in England. Uh, uh, penguin no no um oh, sorry. no that's all right uh, i should know this by heart and i just can't recall them anyway they they, they sold the, the whole press well before that had happened ann Godolph, who was the president of random house called my agent and said uh jimmy is jimmy vines is his name she said uh when Les's book comes out, she said, I love his book, and da-da-da. She said, when it comes out, it's not only going to come out in a bestseller list, it'll come out as number one. And the reason she could de- she could de- say that was bestseller lists are not determined by sales much at all. Uh, what they were going to do that was going to come out, she was going to come out with 5,000 hardcover copies with Random House and 50,000 copies with Ballantine Press or Paperback Company simultaneously. And that would guarantee it would be number one when it came out. Well, I'm all excited because a deal like that comes out, there's going to be a movie deal, a whole big deal. So I was on my way. I quit my uh, job. I was cutting hair. I, uh, I had a lease coming up. I didn't sign it. So I'm on my way. And uh, about three months later, the whole deal got lost because uh, they sold out and shit canned a whole bunch of contracts. Random House always said, we never cancel any deal, which is a big, fat lie. They, they cancel my deal and they cancel other deals. But uh, they, they like to keep that myth going. But anyway, I, it's, it really literally screwed up my life and has to this day. I, I'm suffering the effects of it. Uh, instead, finally, we came out, changed the name. It was called The Perfect Crime. Change the name, and a very small independent publisher brought it out. 
And whereas before they were going to come out with 50,000 paperback and 5,000 hardcover, New York Times would have reviewed everybody would have got in on the act. Uh, I saw maybe, I don't know, 150, 200 copies. Same book. That's just, that's just the way publishing business is. It sucks. It does. Wow. Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> Um, specifically about Adrenaline Junkie. So we had discussed what we thought was a great job you did with keeping the writing kind of relevant to the time it took place in. So there's a, there's a lot of language, sure. and there's a little bit of a feel, I think, too. Were there any internal struggles about the language you would use in telling the story, considering the fact that we're telling a story that's, you know, a few decades old, and we're trying to tell it to an audience in, in you know, in today's society? No. Uh, I I do not believe in being politically correct on any level. I wrote an essay uh, that was published about 15 years ago about this. And in fact, it, was, it appeared in one of my books. I think it's the downfall of freedom in this country. I think it's, it's a horrible thing. And so, I, no, I don't believe in it at all. And so I would never censor myself. Now, I, I wouldn't go around and use the N-word and stuff like that. You know, I, I respect people. I'm not going to do that. But that's what was going on at the time. I'm going to report on it. It, it. It's so important to me to be honest and be truthful. And uh, I don't see any other way around it. It's just never a consideration to couch anything and, you know, that kind of thing. Not going to do it. Well, that's one of the things that I thought, and I think Rob's on board with this, that, that you did it in a respectful way, but kept it feeling very um, genuine. Sure. So it wasn't, wa wasn't watered down at all, but was still handled very well. Uh, uh, you're probably talking about the N-word mostly and things like that. And we did, I was a, a convict, I was in prison, all that stuff. We didn't use that word very much. It just wasn't <laughs> used. It's, it's used more in movies and, and books by people that think that's the way people talk, and they don't, than it is by real people. You know what I mean? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess uh, you you almost said it because you said, I'm going to report on things, honestly, or whatever you said. It has a journalistic kind of quality to it where when you're reading this book, this like, you know, tale of your life, it mm -hmm. reads like someone reporting on that time, not someone trying to embellish or anything. So it, it reads very true to life, which is, uh, I think, a really good quality of, of the writing. Well, thank you, and, that, and that's what I intended. We had that guy, James Fry, a few years ago when he wrote his so-called autobiography or oh. memo. <laughs> that's and right. He, and, he, and he fabricated about it, and I said, gee, he's ruined it for everybody now. And I said, no, I, I'm not, I would, I, there's no reason to do it. I had a, I've had a life that, you know, most people can't even imagine, I don't think. And there's no reason to embellish anything. My problem was I, I had to tone things down because I think, a lot of people wouldn't. I I mentioned that in the book itself. Uh, I had a good friend, Bob. Uh, uh, God, good friend. I can't think of his last name now. Uh, but anyway, he read it. He says, "Less I've known you a long time. I believe everything, except this day when you had three different, three or four different women over." Well, I toned that down. I actually had six or seven over, and I didn't have. <laughs> they, they showed up one after another. We kept going the same damn movie, uh, and I screwed them all. And they weren't away. That was not a normal day, but it wasn't an abnormal day either. And so I, I cut out a couple of them because I thought, now people won't believe this. And then he says, that's the only thing I didn't believe, that you would do three or four or whatever I'd left in there. I said, screw it. I'm not going to, you're not going to win because people judge other people's lives by their own lives. And if they can't do it or can't imagine themselves doing it, 
they think somebody else is making it up, and it's just not true. Uh, I, did, I, I did, remember. I'm sorry. I remember when Wilt Chamberlain came, Chamberlain came out with this book, and people said, "No, he couldn't have screwed two thousand women." I, and I thought, Jesus, I bet he screwed twenty thousand because he. <laughs> he I, I, it's not even a stretch, and but people that don't do that or haven't done that can't imagine that. Did we have that conversation on or off the podcast, Rob? Because we're talking about like we we have to but like when we're we're reading yeah, this, like the yeah. only frame of reference we have is the lives we live, or maybe someone who's really close to us. Yeah. So Rob, yeah. Rob is uh, is quite the the ladies' man. So oh, come I, on. I have to base all my knowledge or, or all my beliefs <laughs> on your book on knowing Rob is really what it comes down to. That's all sarcasm, but uh, that did come up and. Um, uh, I, I uh, when we were I don't know if you listened to the the review or not, but I mentioned how play about ten times. Oh well, all right then you remember <laughs> I mentioned how uh, my brother had had a, a a life kind of similar sure. with some of the ups and downs and 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 some yeah. of the the womanizing and stuff. And had I not had him as as uh, like a like a focus of perspective, yeah, I, I would have found it more unbelievable so yeah you're absolutely right we only see things through our experience and so uh you know many things could be considered like out of uh, unbelievable i guess <laughs> well i talked about when the movie shampoo came out yeah i don't know if y'all remember that or ever saw it but warren Beatty was in it and it was the life of a hairdresser and he was he was pretty rowdy but he was a piker compared to what we were actually doing. I mean, we were doing probably 10 times the things he was doing he showed in the movie. <laughs> and people thought that was shocking. I'll never forget when that came out that weekend, I came back in their salon. I was working in New Orleans, a place called Snobs. And there's all these men there. We, well, we just did women in our salon. And there's all these men there. And I went to ask my boss, Anthony, I said, what the hell's going on? And he said, they all saw the movie. They didn't realize we were nailing their wives and girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a lot of male clientele then, but uh, so it was good. They had no clue, and I mean, it's it's it, that's just the way it is, the way it was, and the way it probably still is. Maybe I don't know. God, man. Wow. Uh, yeah, I I just guarantee you, if you get a woman back and you're you want to do that, you get a woman in your shampoo bowl and got her back, and you got her hands in her hair, and you're two six inches from her talking to her. There's something happens. There's there's a chemistry that happens, and it, it's just very common. Well, I mean, there's an intimacy that um, is kind of required in order to just get the job done. So, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. We're going to post this episode, and um, um, hairstylist school enrollment is going to skyrocket across the, the United States. I had a, a good friend that was uh, – he, he was very wealthy. He His dad owned a chain of funeral parlors, and he was kind of a deal, though. He, he wasn't much of a player or anything. And I took him to the Midwest Beauty Show with me one year in Chicago. I used to work for Clear House, a platform artist, and so I do uh, – the Midwest show gets about, I think, about 35,000, 40,000 hairdressers from all over the country, mostly the Midwest, but really all over the country. And they come there to learn new techniques and stuff and, and to party, basically. It's three days of hedonism. <laughs> and uh, he got like about two or three times a day. He never got late two or three times a month in his life. And I mean, we, he he had to turn people down because it's a party atmosphere. And from then on, he took us. He used to go to Cancun and places like that, Hawaii. And then on, he took his vacations at the Midwest Beauty Show. <laughs> and I mean, he was a doofus looking guy. No person, not much personnel. I mean, I liked him, but not a player. 
But everybody's a player when you're in that situation. <laughs> it's just wow. you. And I imagine the ratio of women to men had to be pretty high, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess that's that, that's where a guy who's a dildo, you know, yeah. can, can, yeah. <laughs> well, same way when I was in Bermuda, the odds were like uh, 35, 40, 50 to one women to men when they'd have what they call uh, college week during spring break and all through the summer. And there was just thousands of women descended on Bermuda from the East Coast, wealthy East Coast colleges, Vassar, Bennington, those kind of schools. Midwest girls went to Fort Lauderdale and, and you know, in Florida, mm-hmm. but yeah, from the state schools. But these are wealth, girls from wealthy colleges, very elite colleges coming to Bermuda. And when girls get out of town, they 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 have kind of a freedom about it when they get out of the country they really go nuts trust me <laughs> and we would walk into a hotel and it'd be nothing but c to c girls young girls teenage girls and up to their 20s and you just walk the table and say you're gonna screw me you wouldn't even buy a drink they'd buy you drinks but you wouldn't even talk to them unless they were gonna screw you and i mean it took five minutes and then back, get another one get another one whatever that's just the lifestyle it was wow I guess those days are gone. I don't know. I'm, I'm <laughs> not. Rob, I think yeah. Rob well, silences I, him booking a trip to Bermuda. Yeah, I'm on. Tra- <laughs> I'm on Travelocity right now, looking at flights. <laughs> I don't even know if they still have. Uh, <laughs> it was. It, it's one of the movie that when where the boys are came out, and that was so tame. Bermuda was nothing <laughs> like that. In fact, it was a. This is in sixty. 63 i was there six three four and five and they had a club in bermuda's bermuda's kind of a staid big money place old money and all this stuff except east coast college girls love it there because they they get out of the country they go nuts but there used to be a club there this is in 63 and it'd been there a while where you could take a date for five dollars each and it didn't matter what sex what gender whatever you took there's a big loft it's on the second floor and they had wall-to-wall mattresses laid down. And then they uh-huh. showed, they showed that they had white screen te- movie screens and they showed porn movies. And you did whatever you want with whoever you wanted on these things. I mean, there'd be 40, 50 people up there just, you know, all kinds of st- stuff moving and grooving. And uh, that was in 63. I came from that, came back to Indiana where you took a girl out three times. That was like the magic number. And then you, she'd let you screw around with her a little bit. And I thought, I can't handle this stuff. This is just too much. <laughs> just nothing happening here. Yeah, I don't know if we have a proper comeback for that. Uh, <laughs> that uh, I've never had a trip. And, and well, I guess the only this is going back to that like you only have your own life to kind of um, sure. uh, reference. And the conferences I've been to, the book conferences, I'm going to tell you less. Yeah. Little bit different. Oh, I know. It's like Con. <laughs> I go to that, and there's there's nothing going on. People are in the bar, but there's there's I'm sure there's some going on, but it's not it's not anything to write home about. It's not a sexy time. It wouldn't make it in the memoir. <laughs> plus, plus, writers don't have the kind of groupies that rock stars have. <laughs> we, sure, our our groupies are ordinarily a little plainer. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. just the way it is. <laughs> so, um. I don't know if this is the the right timing for this, but um, there was also uh, a ton of serious stuff in the book. And there was some stuff that uh, you had emailed us and said, I can't believe you didn't talk about this. Um, Right. And 
and the rape being the big one uh and and livius and i so to tell you less because we haven't talked about this yet sure. um we decided that uh there was some stuff from the book that uh, you know it would make sense to talk to you about instead of just kind of trying to you know retelling it for, through our words so um whatever you want to do it i'm fine with it so I put it out there and it's out there yeah i mean an amazingly brave thing to do i'm guessing probably pretty difficult to do but um and it was not it was pretty early on in the book i want to say about close close to halfway through maybe is yeah. when you detail um your rape while you're in prison so how did you it sounds like you're you're pretty open about about your life so was there a point where you were almost not going to do it or was this always going to be part of the book I was always going to tell the good, the bad, and the ugly, the warts, as well as what I thought were cool things. And I was never not going to do it. I just had to kind of work up to that point. I had to let some time get by before I was able to do it. I, I think I talked about it. In fact, I know I did talk about it in the book the day I did it. I had never told anybody about this. I, none of my wives, nobody. I mean, it's not something you, you, know, you spread around. And uh, finally, I thought, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. I, I couldn't help it. I, I did what I consider was a smart thing. I didn't resist because I'm sure I would have been killed mm -hmm. or, you know, messed up pretty bad. And uh, it wasn't that bad an experience, to be honest. Was, I mean, the guy was, you know, there's this myth about black guys, which is laughable because it's just not true. Um, they're supposed to be all hung and all this shit. Well, it's bullshit because, well, there was a scientific study done years ago, and this, this uh, doctor found out, and his research found the average black guy is about a half an inch bigger than the average white guy on erection. Half an inch. That's what we're talking on average. <laughs> well, I'm considerably more than that. And I, I know I'm bigger than any black guy I ever knew. This guy was so tiny, it was laughable. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was getting poked by a proctologist is about the same thing. <laughs> I mean, really, that's all it was. It... it <laughs> We, we ascribe more to it than there, you know, there is. I know there's Me Too things going on and all this shit, and I feel sorry for him. But, you know, get over it, kind of. There was a little bit of hesitance to talk about it for a while, right? You had to process. Sure. And, and, I mean, I guess because you knew that your life was in danger, that had to, to make it pretty uh, pretty crazy, too. Yeah, it, it was. But I, I've always kind of analyzed things when they were going on and then later and i did the same thing while it was happening and afterwards i i did go after the guy and mess him up pretty bad and there's i can't there's some things i can't say and i won't say because the statute of limitations never runs out on certain things but i kind of had a meeting with him a year or so later in the joint and i got he, he ended up dead and i'm not gonna say anything to do with it i got questioned for it and they could never prove anything but whatever he's he's room temperature now and it's fine with me wow i mean rightfully rightfully so um so you yeah. had a little closure on that one i had a lot of closure <laughs> i had 33 pokes worth of closure but uh, all right um among the really deeply personal things, of which certainly that was one, um, and, and I don't, I guess I'm just going to say it's how I'm going to say it. Um, that affected me, reading that whole portion of your life in prison. But what affected me a little more 
was um and you know and this isn't like a, like i don't feel like i can spoil this book because it's your memoir so it's not like a twist ending but towards the end you kind of detail some things that you learned um about your parents yeah which which really affected me in a in an even stronger way like that whole kind of um conflict that you had with your mother yeah and, and i guess again it, it's kind of one of those things i mean you seem be a very open guy and you put it out there but i mean some of it was it was there anything in the book that was really hard for you to write about you know i mean that was some deeply emotional stuff and in my opinion like i said as a reader it affected me more than than you know the the previous scenario that you just laid out for everybody yeah um, um no because i always knew my mother was fucked up and so was my father and so was i but uh, my whole family was dysfunctional. They they were and they are. Um, it, but, you know, you can either decide that you're going to be influenced by that or you can decide you're not going to, I think. At least I, that's what I felt. And I'm, I'm not going to let them rent space in my head. I'm just not. That's not going to happen. Uh, if they're not there and they're messing with you, they're, they're renting space in your head. And that's up to you to either allow that or not. I'm not going to be a victim. You have to play along to be a victim. I'm just not going to do it. I don't know if that answers what you're asking or not. No, no, absolutely it does. I just, I, I guess, you know, I, I want. I don't want to say this and sound, it sounds douchey in my head, right? But like, I, I just, I applaud you for, for your, you know, what I would say is, you know, kind of courage and opening up some crazy, deeply personal things about your life to anybody with, you know, six ninety nine or whatever the cost of the book is. And, and I... You know, I I have closets that have skeletons in them. I know Rob does, and and I just want to applaud you for for <laughs> being for being, um, you know, just as open as you were, and it's it's fascinating to me. I guess just the whole the whole concept. Yeah, uh, there's I can't think of anything I wouldn't tell anybody if they asked, or, or just to tell them. I there's nothing. Um, I survived it, and uh, it's it's done and over. I'm kind of glad. My mother gave me a lot of material to be a writer, so I'm thankful for that. <laughs> and she's room temperature now, so that's cool. I'm glad. <laughs> and honestly, like to me, reading through the parts of um, uh, of of that part of the book, uh, I feel like the emotion that I was kind of feeling the most is more like a frustrated disappointment, almost. Like uh, to me, it was like you just wanted an answer and for whatever reason, all this stubborn uh, lies and stonewalling kind of stuff happened. And I felt bad for you. It was like, <clears throat> first of all, you had to kind of keep putting this pressure on, on this topic. That's like frustrating to you, but then to just constantly be disappointed by their reaction to, to, to you just trying to get the truth. Yeah. Uh, it was to me, that was the big thing. It was just like, it had to suck to make yourself waste your time on, on that. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, the, the reason, basically the reason I wrote the book was my father, who wasn't my father, but who I thought was my father all my life until, you know, a few years ago when I found out differently, uh, I always pictured him as this impossible ideal. He, would never tell a lie, although his whole life was a lie, but I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I could never measure up to him. He was he was a, a tough guy. I mean, a genuinely tough guy. And I could never, that's why I joined the service, didn't go to college. That's why I did all kinds of things to 
you know, measure up to him, which I never did and never could. And then, but I didn't want my kids to go through that. I didn't want them to think, well, there's no way they were going to think I'm some kind of perfect guy. But I didn't even want them to have a shadow of doubt. I want them to know that I was imperfect and I did bad things and I did wrong things. But hopefully I've learned from them and I've changed. That was, to me, the value of writing that was for my kids. And I got a bonus with my daughter who I didn't know was even out there when she read it, like a day after it came out. And she had just found out. I don't know if you read my blog about what happened there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We, we actually, why don't you go ahead and tell. So we, we actually had a question formulated around that. But why don't you go ahead and, and tell our listeners what happened? Okay. I had, uh, I'd written about it in my blog, in my blog, in my uh, memoir about a, a daughter. I, I was go, living with a girl at the time I got busted when I got sent up. And we were just living together, but she got pregnant. Well, I'm real old-fashioned. I don't believe in abortion and all this shit. Uh, sorry, I'm just not politically correct. And uh, she wanted to give her an abortion. I said, please don't. Let's get married. She didn't want to get married, but I said, I want the baby to have a name. So she agreed to marry me. I got sent up. She was pregnant. I arranged my sister and brother-in-law to take her in. And, and they lived in Lakeville. They had two kids of their own. But they took her in, let her live with them for months until I got out because I knew I was getting out in a couple, two or three years. And uh, I was there about four or five months, and she sent me papers for divorce. And I wouldn't sign them, but you don't have any rights when you're there. So she got divorced without it, which is fine. But she kept on living with my sister and brother-in-law, <coughs> excuse me, and their family. And uh, she was about eight, nine months pregnant. And my brother-in-law was up on, on the ladder painting cupboards in the kitchen. She reached up and grabbed his Johnson and wanted to have sex with him. He got pissed, and they kicked her out of the house. And they called me and said, or wrote me, because you couldn't call, you couldn't talk to people on the phone in those days in the joint. And I was down in Pendleton. And they said, they're really sorry they had no choice. And I said, no, you're great to even do that. And so I said, well, uh, then she sent me papers to put the child up for adoption. I said, no, I don't want, I will not do that. <clears throat> and my sister and brother-in-law said they would take the baby and raise it until I got out. And she's, nope, nobody's getting it. I'm putting this kid up for adoption. So that's what happened. <clears throat> and then when I finally got out a couple of years later out of the joint, I went to a minister and told him what had happened about the, the daughter. I knew it was a daughter. And he, if I should try to look her up or what, and he said, no, he said, Les, she's, she's got parents that love her and she loves them. She's got a good life. You have you no way you can take care of her or anything. Let it be. And so that's what I wrote in a memoir about that incident. And I said, I really wanted her, but I, I didn't feel I had a choice. And I hope if she ever gets a hold of me, this is before we knew about DNA or any of that stuff. If she ever finds me somehow, I hope she'll forgive me for not going after her. But this is why. Well, she had just done it. She had some health problems. This the girl turned out to be my daughter had some health problems, and she they would never tell her where she was adopted from. So she did a DNA thing on Ancestry.com where I'd done one where I found out my real father who he was, and a couple of years before this, and she she read my name that I was her dad. She went to Google, Google my name, and found out I just had a memoir release. So she went and got it literally a day after it came out, read it, and found this part about I wanted her. And she said, that made me feel so good. She said, I've always felt I was not wanted. She had kind of a problem with her mother or dad. She loved death, but her mother was kind of a nod, I guess. She had problems with her. 
But she told me, she says, I've never felt wanted in my whole life. And she said, for the first time in my life when I read that, somebody wanted me back in because she had no idea I'd ever seen this or read it or read and I didn't. And she said, so I thought, wow, this is a bonus. And she's since come down with her husband and her daughter, my granddaughter, and they're wonderful people. We're getting along. She's met her sisters and brother now. And it's 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 like a miracle. It really is. Uh, it's just a, a wonderful offshoot of this whole deal. It's a tremendous story, um, not just in the fact that somebody could find you um, that way, but because of your vocation and because you had written a memoir, this this young lady got to read, you know, uh, your side of the story before yep. even, right? So you see this all the time, these connections. If you watch like 2020 or even the nightly news, you know, someone's reunited after, you know, years because of a DNA test. But it's just so amazing that she got to learn a lot about you um, prior to meeting you. Yeah. And Which yeah. that to me was what was cool. <laughs> And I don't understand why somebody hadn't contacted me. I'd love to go on 2020 or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, the beautiful uh, thing about her finding that uh, book and reading it before reaching out to you is she knows there's no way that you are just saying that because that's what she wants to hear. She knows it's 100% genuine, which yep. makes it like that much more impactful, which is really cool. Yeah, I agree. While so, we're on this uh, subject, um, you know, we've already discussed how open you've been to about your past with women. Um, We haven't talked about it, but there was drug use, um, crime. Has there been any negative reaction from your friends, family, people that you know? Did someone from, you know, read your book that you you lived in a town with that called you up and, you know, and and had things to say to you about some of these things you admit to doing? I don't think they know about the book, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) My wife did not want me to do this because she didn't want my, she thought it would embarrass my son and my daughters, but I don't think it has or will. Uh, I think she's going to come around. I hope she does. But I told a long time ago, I'm a writer and nobody's going to keep me from writing what I want to write and, and be truthful about it. So that's just, that's, you know, she knows it. She's a wonderful woman, wonderful person. And I think she's coming around on it, but it was too important to me, um, to not to not write it and get it out there the problem is it's i'm not getting a lot of sales because it's not it's not in barnes and noble or anything and that's that's the key to everything when, when you go with the small independent it's you're never going to sell a whole lot it's just not going to happen unfortunately but that's the way it is that's yeah um especially with your story about that book bomb how like it it, yeah. it lived an entirely different life than what you thought it was going to be. Um, it's, it's weird because there, there like, there's so many good things about independent presses, but there's also like a massive drawback and it's hard to kind of, uh, choose to want that audience, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised this hasn't come up already guys, but, um, less you had a good chunk of your book took place in, um, New Orleans? Yeah. And Livius's favorite place to be in the world is, is New Orleans, I believe, <laughs> is, is New Orleans. Yes, that is correct. Yes. And so that had to be personally satisfying for Livius, but I feel like you guys should just, you know, bomb on down there for a trip, like hang well, out there together. I'm never going unless, if I have to leave, <laughs> I won't go. I told my wife that when we left that I'll never go back there. I love it more than any place in the world unless I can stay there. <laughs> I can't leaving again. Just so I I get down there once to twice a year. 
um, for the most part, for the last 15 <laughs> years or so, um, with yeah. a couple of off years. They had that inclement weather thing, Katrina, a few years ago, so we skipped a couple of trips. But um, it's it's just funny because I'm reading this and you're, you're saying how you live behind the Café du Monde. And, of course, I'm, I'm a total tourist, right? Like, I spend my entire time in the French Quarter while I'm there. But um, oh, it is really there. there there is a feel there that I don't I have I mean I haven't traveled wide and far um but I don't think is replicated anywhere I tell people like if you were to knock me out drug me whatever and you put me out in the middle of Bourbon Street and it could be six in the morning like there don't have to be people around like I feel there's an atmosphere there if I was blindfolded I could tell you where I was and it's a it's a very very special um uh place and and I think that I don't know that I thought it the first time I was there, but by the second or third time, I could definitely tell that there was something there that just doesn't exist as far as I know anywhere else. I, You're exactly right. And, and you're probably a Mardi Gras kind of a guy. I'll tell you the best time to go is Jazz Fest, guaranteed. I have been during Jazz Fest. Um, my favorite time is during Halloween. Mardi Gras is too yeah. busy. Yeah. So I'm actually going to be there in Three weeks from today, I will be there, which is pre-Mardi Gras, which is just kind of a quiet, relaxing time down there, which is what I was looking for. Yeah. Um, it, Halloween, people don't really, that don't live there realize, don't realize New Orleans people uh, costume for everything. There's more costume shops there. Like there are gas stations in other town in every corner. There's costume shops there. <laughs> and everybody has contests and stuff. I won one one year at forty one forty one, which is uh, a big night. It was play they made Playboy's list of best ten best in the United States nightclubs every year, and I won five hundred bucks there one year for a costume I made out of a sheet of cardboard. I made it into a tube and then put over me and then put garbage can liners around that and made a hat like a coolie hat, and then on the back wrote three X's in white paint and then took. Uh, whipped cream and uh, put it over my head and drip whipped cream down and I walked in with my hands going up and down like that so I was a giant <laughs> no rubber <laughs> so I won a nice contest that year with a homemade costume but yeah there's it's incredible it's just a party town and the trick in New Orleans is other towns people uh, I'll tell you two, you probably know this you've been down there that much Two people you never ask where to go are cabbies and uh, doormen because they're all confiscated. These got awful places, yep. courted mm-hmm. sisters and tourist traps that are horrible, yep. like that, tipitinas and crap like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they all get a buck or two when they steer. And that's what the average church asks them that. The other thing is, New Orleans people don't go out until one or two in the morning and then we stay out all night and then go to work the next day from partying. The average tourist goes back to their hotel at one or two in the morning because that's what they're used to. That's mm-hmm. when the real partying starts. <clears throat> I think that's carried. I think that's actually carried over from from the French because um, I was in France recently, and yeah, a restaurant eight, eight, seven thirty at night. The restaurant's completely empty. Ten thirty at night. Restaurant's full. This is on like a weeknight. Yeah, right. Yeah. So. And- so many young people have moved down there because they went down for Mardi Gras or something they loved, so they moved down there, and that's their lifestyle now. <laughs> they do the same thing. Well, I'll be thinking about you if I have to take a nap on a bench back there behind the Café <laughs> du Monde. Uh, you probably don't want to do that. No, no, you don't. <laughs> so, the other thing about New Orleans, people don't realize that the town's in, chief industry is tourism. 
So about every one out of every 10 guys you see is usually a plainclothes policeman. They're everywhere in the court, and you won't know it if you're not attuned to cops. You just think they're tourists like everybody else. They're all through there, all over there, watching out for the tourists. And if you get off, see, the quarters in the oldest part of town, so all around are projects. It's the oldest part of town. And so if, if, as long as you're in the quarter, you're well protected, pretty well protected. Mm-hmm. So, but once you get a foot off, you're dead meat. And you never want to walk up in the little patios and stuff like that on site because that's what the, they'll mug you. I guarantee it'll happen. Yeah, we um, we made the mistake one year of um, we stayed uh, just outside the French Quarter. We got a great deal in this old mansion that was converted into a, into a hotel. And I got to tell you, Les, I grew up in Chicago. Okay. And I don't know if I was ever as afraid as walking back to my hotel at night. Yeah. Because it was like too short to take a cab. It was like a block or two outside the French Quarter. But my God, man, it was terrifying. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a couple of stories about New Orleans. My girlfriend, Kat, who was, she's in my book a lot. She was a call girl. And uh, she, uh, we were in a bar one night about three in the morning, a little neighborhood bar. And it was 18 of us in there. The reason I know these numbers is because of what happened. And somebody, brought, everybody kind of knew each other. We were in Fat City. And somebody brought a new gun in and was showing the you know, bartender. The bartender said I, wonder, said, I wonder how many guns are in there. 18 people, it was over 32 guns. And that wasn't all the guns because I didn't bring mine out because I wasn't licensed for it, obviously. My girlfriend brought out one she had in her purse. She didn't bring out the one in her boot and the one in the car. And I knew other people were rat holing. But everybody is armed in New Orleans. I mean, everybody. And there's there's booze and there's drugs. <coughs> Tempers fly, and so they don't mind using them. Uh, on New Year's Eve, I don't know if it still is, but it used to be the tradition. Everybody goes outside or new, at midnight and shoots their gun in the air. So one year I went with Mousy. He was a black. He was a husband of a black girl I worked with that is a salon I worked with. And so we rush out in their street, and they were in a black neighborhood in Ninth Ward. And everybody's shooting their guns off. I'm shooting mine off. My wife's shooting hers off. And there was a sea of black people. We're the only white people. I mean, there was hundreds of them out there shooting guns off. And I said, oh, this is not a good place for the honkies to be right now. And I looked at Mouse, and he said, yeah, maybe you guys better go back inside. So, but yeah, that's New Orleans. I love it. Us uh, honest, law-abiding citizens appreciate the fact that we're safe in the French Quarter. That's all I have to add to that. <laughs> yeah, so, and we pretty much yeah. are. Because they, 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 it, there's so many things that don't ever make the paper there. You would not believe because it's a one-paper town, times Picune. And if they put half of the things that happen there, people would never go there if they realized yeah. what was actually going on. I mean, it's a very dangerous town. But... It's dangerous in the fact that I grew up in Texas, too, and you're in rattlesnake country, and you look for rattlesnakes. That's the problem. A lot of tourists from Iowa and Indiana or whatever aren't used to looking for rattlesnakes, and so they go to the French Quarter. This happened a few years ago. One of the times I was living there, there was a lady from Ohio, some small town in Ohio, and she went to uh, Louis V. Armstrong Park, which is, if you're a native, you wouldn't be caught dead near because it's the druggie park. Mm-hmm. It's August, and you see guys with long sleeve coats on. You you just saw a rattlesnake, dude. <laughs> I mean, why do you think he's got that long sleeve coat on? He's a junkie. And anyway, the park's full of them. And tourists go over there all the time because it's Louis B. Armstrong, and it's near the quarters. And she was in there, and she was snapping pictures with her like or whatever she had. And she turned around, this young 
this young black guy walking through the park with a purpose, had a long coat on and all. She said, oh, sir, would you take my picture? And she handed him her expensive camera. Well, he did what any self-respecting junkie or drug dealer would do. He'd start walking off with it. She started screaming at him, so he turned around and shot and killed her. Well, it's a rattlesnake. You don't provoke him. Uh, you sure don't hand him your camera. But she was kind of a doofus. She was used to the prairies <laughs> yeah. in Ohio, and she thought, you know, she believed all the shit she sees on CNN. And uh, so anyway, the, what the problem was, though, the mayor at the time, I figured Landrew, I think it was the mayor, he sent this letter to her hometown and apologized on behalf of New Orleans for her untimely death and everything. And it made all the big networks and everything because what happened was he misspelled her name. And they thought that was horrible. I thought, what other freaking mayor would even send a telegram? You know? Yeah, no kidding. Spelled her name, but big, big hairiest deal. But uh, yeah, that was a big deal. And I thought, well, she's, I mean, nobody deserves to get killed. But if somebody did, she was one of them. She's just too stupid to be alive. <laughs> all right, all right, Les. If you had to pick, and this is going back to the book, and this is kind of lighthearted, so you know. But um, if you had to pick between um, having continued on in your porn film career or having continued on in your escorting career, which one would you have gone and why? Oh, the escorting, better money and better places. I uh, <laughs> the porn. We didn't even didn't call it porn in those days. They were just called stag movies. And uh, I only made a couple, three of them in one day, which shows my staying power for one thing. But anyway, the escort service, uh, this is fairly typical. The heir to the Punch Train Hotel, which is very old money and a lot of money. In Euros, I was in my 30s and early 30s. And she invited me to go to a Port of Vallarta with her and her girlfriend. There's is our escort. <clears throat> and uh, we stayed in Liz Taylor Richard Burton's suite, their villa. She rented it. And she has serious money. So before we went on a weekend, she took me down to Maison Blanche, big uh, ritzy store in town, and bought me $5,000 worth of clothes so I wouldn't embarrass her. And then paid, I forget how, when she paid me probably another thousand or so for the weekend. But it was always nice ladies, and they paid a lot of money. We weren't, you know, Scumball it for the by the hour. We're is a pretty classy uh, service, so we got cream of the crop, and you didn't have to, you know, you weren't slinging it on the corner or anything. So yeah, it was it was pretty fun. When Livius was selling himself, uh, it was a different story. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> for cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Especially now, if you try to buy a pack of cigarettes now, it's like ten bucks. Yeah, I know. It's I'm yeah. Going to Quit. I finally quit. <laughs> <laughs> He's been taking jabs at me, so I figured I could uh, take a shot back. Um, Are you guys still out of Chicago? Yeah. Um, so suburbs of Chicago, like northwest suburbs of Chicago, by about forty miles outside of Chicago, but uh, close enough that yeah. it counts, I guess, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, love, I used to, I worked there first. For a while, and I worked on Ontario Street. I was just, I was, I was down at the uh, Congress Hotel Friday. Oh, the Congress! But last time I was there, you could smell pee in the halls and stuff. It was like a nursing home. It, uh, <laughs> it's not <I'm> serious. <laughs> it's not like that now. I guess the thing that uh, I was told, I didn't, I wasn't aware of this, and, and being a Chicago guy is kind of embarrassing. But I guess the fourth floor was where Al Capone he had the whole floor. 
And um, I was I stayed like two rooms over from what was his kind of standard room. Oh. And uh, yeah, it's it's nice. It's obviously that it's an old building. Yeah. Um. So you don't expect it to be like these new hotels, but uh, it was cool to be uh, around that kind of history. Well, it's probably been thirty years since I was there, and it was it was going through a period. I think they rejuvenated it, or whatever you call it. Sure. Later, but it was kind of getting down down at the heels. Uh, <laughs> do you ever go and see? Uh, oh, what's his name? He's got the club right up a block away. Um, the uh, blues club. Body guy legends. Yeah, guy. Yeah, no, never, never got to go around to that. My son was going to go to Columbia up there, and he offered him a job while he was going to school, and then that fell through. So. I um I went to Columbia for a couple of years, and that's one of the bars that didn't really care about carding. Yeah. Um, and although I never saw Buddy Guy perform, I did actually see him in, there. in the bar. Usually in New Orleans or Detroit. Yeah. Well, this was back. This was back in. Uh, I guess this would have been ninety, ninety one, maybe. And uh, I, I, I honestly, I, I, it's probably a shame to say this. I wouldn't recognize him if someone didn't point him out to me. Yeah. But no, there was, I think, twice that we were there. They said, "Hey," someone said, "Hey, man, that's that's Buddy Guy." And I go, "Oh, that's really cool." But I couldn't identify a Buddy Guy song if you know one bit me on the ass. Yeah, I don't even know if he's still alive. I think he is, but yeah, he's that club's been here forever. That's pretty wild. So. uh Outside of what uh, this is, just something that I feel like we can't not mention it. Outside of what's in the book, um, the Charles Manson thing just totally threw me for a loop uh, because it seemed like so kind of oh by the way, yeah. um, like it was a it, it, and it was kind of cool because uh, that person has such a, a place in um, the cultural identity of like a certain time in America. And for you, it was like, Oh, this guy was bothering me. And I thought that was like the perfect but, way to include something like him. So well, he's, he's a, he's in that way. Well, room temperature now, but he's in that job. He's there's yeah. some guys like him in a joint, but they, they just don't have to get the press. He does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> actually, I don't even think he did anything himself. He just had his little bimbos go out and do stuff. Yeah. 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 So did you it, not? It did you did you get anything out of him that is not public knowledge? Um, I can't think of anything. It was just general shit. Guys that were enjoying talking about shit they got away sure. with, bragging and stuff. His roommate or some roommate, his cellmate's a guy that really frosted my patooties. <clears throat> Roger Smith. He billed himself as the world's most stabbed inmate, which he probably was. He was stabbed <laughs> over three hundred times. And he's he's stabbed over three hundred people, and so every gang in a joint has got a hit out on him. And that's why the, with Charles Manson, because both of them are punks. If they were out in the yard with in general population, they wouldn't last five minutes. So they get taken care of so quick. Yeah. So they have, they put them in safekeeping and uh, protect them. But uh, it's it's where pussies go. <laughs> but that, that's kind of what he was. But this Roger Smith kept kept asking me to write his uh, autobiography for him. And his deal was he'd been in the, he'd been in the system, been in the joints all his life since he's a juvie. And, and now he's got religion. He's found God or God's found him or one of them found each other. And he wants to steer little tykes like himself away from a life of crime. What's well, a bunch of horse shit. He's got a jailhouse conversion. He just, he wants some notoriety is all he wanted. And I could read him like a book. And I kept saying, no, I'm sorry, Roger. I don't have time. I got a lot of stuff. And finally, this went on for about a week. He's begging me to write his story. Charles Manson has a secretary in North or South Carolina, or he did when he was alive, that kept all his material, made all his 
things for interviews, took care of all that. He can't keep the money, but he gives it to charities and she runs all that shit. And he'd gotten Roger in with the secretary. So Roger's saying, I've got journals I've kept all my life. I've got trunks full of them. You can have them all. <laughs> and just write my story so little kids won't fall into my life of crime. And like I said, I kept saying, I can't. I, I just don't have time. And finally, I got a tickle on my throat, guys. Anyway, finally says, Les, what's the real reason you don't want to write it? And I said, you want to know the real reason, Roger? He said, yeah. And I said, well, to me, you're like a serial killer. You keep stabbing people. You're doing the same thing over and over. And to be honest, serial killers and you are boring. They keep doing the same thing. They don't ever try anything new. <laughs> and he said, really, that's why you don't want to write it? I'm boring? I said, yeah. And he says, then he went, lost his religion, called me MF this and MF that, which is normal. And said, if I ever get out of here, you're the first guy I'm looking at. And I started laughing. I said, Roger. You're in Corcoran. There's 14-foot walls. They ain't letting you out in the, unless they have the biggest earthquake California's ever had. And the problem is, even if you did get out and came to my house look me up, you, you work with a knife. I got a gun, dude. <laughs> so that was good. <laughs> That's how you handle a guy like that. Yeah, he's a joke. So is Charlie Manson. People... People, that's why some of my books sell real well. The people that know about them because they can get next to dirt without getting in on them. And it's <laughs> listen, I, I prefer it that way to be quite frank. So I'm, I'm okay with that getting the dirt on me. So. I, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and again, like we're, we're kind of out of questions. This is just sure. like topics for, for general discussion, but I am fascinated by. Hair, hair stylist convicts. I mean, since I read this book, I am telling you, I think about this maybe every goddamn day. He won't stop talking about it. He won't. <laughs> I'm t- well, I'm telling you. That's Indiana, and it, it's not that way anymore. And I don't know if it, how, how many other states it was. But I tell you what, when I was in, in the 60s, guys that got out of barber school had people waiting for them because we had a reputation. We learned we were in school so much more. <laughs> worked on so many more heads than anybody in civilian schools. We just knew our stuff. And so the barbershops, which is where I started, they they knew this in Indiana. And I guarantee I could walk into any town in Indiana and walk into three barbershops. By the third one, I would have seen somebody went through school in the joint. Guaranteed. Probably all three of them. And uh, that's just the way it was. I When I, I, I went to work in South Bend uh, for a twin brother, he, he and his brother were twins. They were out on lifetime parole for murder. And uh, they owned a shop in in Niles, or not Niles, uh, Roseland. And uh, went from there to another shop in the west end of South Bend. That guy was from the joint. Went from there to a place in Lakeville. That guy was from the joint and then went to work at Michael's, who was the best stylist in Indiana. He started learning to cut hair when he was in boys' school. And so it's just... We're just the best. We really are. Head and shoulders above everybody. Uh, people that were in civilian schools, they would get to work on one or two a day if they were lucky. We, When I was in there, the warden made, or the superintendent made everybody get a haircut every two weeks. So we had over 2,000 inmates that we worked on. So I would do 10 to 15 haircuts a day every day. Plus, you're in there longer. We just we, we had so much experience over you know civilian barbers. That there was no, there's no comparison. So people wanted us. Now every state's different, and so I. But in those days, the people that had barber, uh, 
degrees from Pendleton went out. I'd say the recidivism rate was probably 90%, over 90%, did not come back. We walked into, I wow. walked jobs 500 a week in 68, and that was oh, good shit. money, and that was the lowest I had. After I learned what <laughs> I was doing, I was making double that, and this is in the late 60s. So yeah. there's no reason to do anything. You don't want to mess up your meal ticket by going back to the joint and working for two cents an hour. With with all due respect, I am going to disregard that you said that may have only been in certain places and that it's not happening now. And I'll tell you why. Because right after I finished reading your book, I went in to get my hair cut. I get my hair cut probably every four to five weeks. And I walked into the same place I always walk into. It's a chain. I'm not going to name the chain. But there were three women working, and it didn't matter to me. By the time I got in the chair, I had concocted a story for at least two of them on what they were uh, what they were in the joint for, and I'm probably going to continue to do this for for the rest of my days. So, great book aside, you've given me something that I'm going to think about every four to five weeks for you know whatever I've got left. So, well, in in my day, it was probably true, at least in Indiana, and and it's in, in South. A good friend of mine went to the joint. I got him a job at uh, Sassoon's in Chicago. He became the manager there, and then they transferred him to New York. He was the manager of Sassoon's in New York, and now he's he's my best friend. He's got the leading salon in the Southwest in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I go see him about every year. Spend a week with him, but he's a joint guy. <laughs> That's yes. awesome. I'll, all right, and I'm not immune to this either. There's um, it's funny the, the <laughs> where my apartment is. Like across my little street is this, and I never, and I've always loved this place because it's just this tiny little building, and and um, it just has like a hand painted sign that says Joe's Barbershop, and it's <laughs> never open. Like I see the open sign illuminated once every like week or two, and it's by appointment only, and I've always been so confused by it, and I've never thought of an explanation. Well, and maybe he's making book there or something. That's what I was thinking. Like, this is definitely yeah. not the cutting the hair is not the primary function of this of this place. Um, and so, uh, oh, and jokingly now, I'm like, well, he's probably a convict, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's just because it's your book has had an effect on us, obviously. And so now we're trying to find that you know wherever we can. Um, yeah. yeah, but uh, yeah, he also owns a. Uh, like a, a restaurant, a little rest, like a breakfast restaurant, like a brunch place in town too. So I think this guy just like likes to do different work, but it's fun to just kind of speculate. <laughs> um, if if you, do, I'll, I'll give you a clue. If you do find out somebody did time, don't ask them what they did time for. That's not cool. <laughs> That's the big faux pas. Uh, yeah. I uh, I used to go down to Pendleton once or twice a year until just oh, maybe five, six years ago. And I used to take a guy with me. I was teaching school in different places in college, and I would take guys that were into criminal justice, stuff like that, so they, they otherwise they'd never get to see the inside of a joint. And we'd just spend the, the whole day there. I took this one guy with me. He was so, He's a funny guy anyway, a young kid. And he was all big-eyed and everything, get to go on a joint. So we go in there. And uh, I, I I went there all the time, and I knew the guys. Some were there when I was there. Some were still there were there when I was there. But anyway, there was about 20, 25 guys in, in the barber school, and the instructor's a civilian. We're old friends. He, I've been going there for years. So uh, I forget this kid's name. I'll call him Scott. 
that wasn't it, but I don't remember what it was. Anyway, I, I'm with a group of cons uh, inmates over in one part of the, the room, and he's in another place, and all of a sudden, I hear this screaming, and he, this guy, he's got him up against one hand around his neck. He's got him three feet off the ground, and I thought, oh, shit. So I run over, <laughs> and the instructor ran over and says, let the dude down, man. Don't kill him. And so he we got him calmed, got the inmate calmed down, and he let him down. And I said, what the hell did he do? And he says, he asked me what I was in here for. And I said, oh, Scott, you do not do that because they may tell you or show you. And uh, <laughs> it's just something you don't do. Because there are people in there that are in there for not honorable crimes. They're in there for rape and child molesting, shit like that. They do not want to be asked. And it's just That's... something you don't do. So I'd be real careful. I'll tell you anything you want to know because my crimes are all cool. <laughs> that is a good point. Your crimes were pretty badass. <laughs> yeah. I was a secondary burglar and I did armed robbery and strong arm robbery and some drug dealing and shit like that. That's about it. Um, in the book, uh, uh, quite a bit, you reference um, a lot of the like early reading you did. And I'm going to assume that that continued on um, through your life. I don't, you know, I'm not asking for you to pick, you know, a recommendation of, of the greats, but but kind of give give people an idea of who you think has come closest to perfecting the craft. Oh, no doubt about it, Camus. The Stranger is the most perfect book ever written, in my opinion. I think he subscribes wow, yeah. Eastern philosophy, where in Eastern philosophies, you always put a, a small flaw in a, in a rug or something because you don't want to challenge God. And I can't find a flaw in The Stranger, but I know it's got to be in there. If it's not, then we might as well all quit and quit writing because <laughs> he wrote the perfect book and nobody can match it. But, yeah, I think he's the best. That Which, is a that is I a very good book. I think that book is the best ever written. <clears throat> but um, there's people I like, like Harry Cruz, I think, is a freaking, was a freaking genius. I really uh, relate to him a lot in his life and everything and his writing. Livius, did you read The Stranger? Yeah, so um, I, don't, I don't, like, I thought I did. And then I'm thinking, like, did I? If I would have, it would have been it's a long time simple. ago. It's deceptively simple. It's a small, you know, it's a small book and all that. But it's brilliant, I think. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I, I will tell you, I am going to read it um, again if I, I read just, it. You may not have that impression. You know, it's everybody's gives different Taste. Oh, it worked on me big time. Yeah, but I was in my twenties, I think, when I read it. I was like, in a, in, a, in an opening of my mind kind of age, but like it sh it showed me some things with like people and and the way they interact that I hadn't really thought about before, and it was very powerful. I like his tone in the book. He's it's very amoral, and that's kind of the way I yeah. am. Very amoral. Not I can see that. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what I kind of. Uh, instinctively do try to do anyway. Um, no, but there's a there's a guy that likes me a lot now, and Joe Lansdale. I don't know if you're familiar with Joe's work. Mm -hmm. And uh, he he said I'm his favorite crime writer, which didn't do any good because it didn't give me a good publisher yet or a big publisher. <laughs> <laughs> He's reading uh, Adrenaline Junkie right now. Says so right, he told me I picked it up. And I can't put it down, so we'll see. Maybe you'll been... send me to somebody. 
<laughs> I've been telling Rob to read the Happen Leonard series for I think as long as I've known Rob. Yeah. I've been dodging it. No, we always read other stuff. And yeah. Elmore Leonard, I love his stuff. I love his voice. And Hollywood never got him right. They did one of his movies right, and that was Kill Shot. It's the only one. It's the only one that did real good box office, too. They always screw him up. They think he's broad comedy. He is not. He's black comedy. They always miss him. When they did the Raylan series, TV yeah. series, they got that so freaking wrong. <laughs> oh. Wrong. Oh. I feel, I feel a, a debate coming up here. No, no. I mean, well, here's the thing. I love that show. I, I have not too. I have not read a lot of Elmore Leonard, so I have no I have no debate there. Uh yeah. But his the character Raylon is exactly like the guy that played the antagonist Nat. I forget his name. He's he's a well known uh, bad guy. Yeah, Boyd Boyd Crowder. Yeah, they were exactly alike in the books. Looked alike, acted alike, everything. Okay. And, okay. and they okay. give him this big white hat and all this bullshit and it's just it's it, Hollywood people are just freaking stupid. I hear <laughs> they are. Skit Shorty is a black comedy. It's not a they. They want to do everything as a broad comedy, and that's not Elmore Leonard. He's yeah, very, very subtle. And my favorite book of his is Kill Shot. I love it. And they did a movie with him that was perfect. It was perfectly cast, and it it died because oh. it's not the kind of taste the average person. The average person's not smart enough to get Elmore Leonard. They're just not. Oh, Olivia said might have to be our next review. <laughs> um, I'm not opposed to reading some Elmore <laughs> Leonard. We actually did that. Uh, oh, what was it? The novelization of Justified? What was that called? Well, yeah, it was. Uh, it was after Justified released. Elmore Leonard wrote a book called Raylan, which was essentially the plot of I think most of the second season of the TV show. Yeah. Um, or at least they paralleled them each other uh, very well. Yeah. So we, we did that. Those books. Now he's got a book out, a Raylan book. It's something. Oh, really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Damn, I did, yeah so, so to preface why I said there was going to be a debate, um, I, I, and I'm just guessing, I think Rob has watched the justified series in its entirety, probably five times now. Mm hmm. I'm midway through like uh, season three right now. Of I and just started I, watching. I'll tell you what week. your favorite part is. Uh, one of your favorites when the guy with the oxygen tank. Fuck! <laughs> I watched that the other night. Love that. That that's, that's classic. That's so good. It's it felt so real. Yeah. Like the whole thing. I I literally watched that. I think last night. It's funny that you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. <laughs> All right, Les, before we let you go, is there anything else you want to plug or, or tell our listeners where they can find out more about you? Well, my blog thing, I don't know if you're going to run a, a thingy on the screen or anything, but uh, it's www.lesedgertononwriting.blogspot.com backslash. All my stuff's there and on Facebook, but it goes there first. And uh, get all my books are listed on my blog, and you can click on them and go right to Amazon or wherever and get in to buy copies. Adrenaline Junkies right up the top. Buy Chris is right around the corner, so buy copies for 
next Christmas. Get your shopping done early. <laughs> That's right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Les, for coming on. We, Olivia, I, I didn't, we didn't say this earlier, but, and this is, this is going to stay on the show. Um, we, we didn't have a lot of questions and I said to Olivia, like, this is me being very candid. I'm like, I think Les is going to be able to just fill that time. He, I get the feeling that Les is the kind of guy that once you get him going, it's yeah. just a great conversation. So, and it was, so uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. You guys are great. You really are. Yeah, big thanks to Les Edgerton. God damn it, that was exactly what I expected and hoped for. Um, what an interesting guy, and so goddamn funny, man. When was the last time we had a guest on that was that funny? Not in a while. And honestly, like that's one of the things that I was going to talk about is how just entertaining he is. The man, um, he knows how to tell a story, um, but he's also just so like friendly. You want to talk to him. You want to, you know keep the thing going we probably could have gone another hour easily with that dude i'm sure we could have and i'm sure we will again at some point for sure so uh big thanks again to les edgerton for joining us this evening big thanks to you guys for listening um you're probably wondering what's next here's what you didn't expect to hear um next week we are going to do a throwback episode where we review a book that is not at all recent as a matter of fact not from this century and not from the last century um, this is going to be the oldest book we've reviewed, um, The Three Musketeers by Alexandre Dumas. Yeah, uh, I don't remember how this came about. I'm sure that we were just talking. I think Livius just at one point was like, I really want to read this, and that's how it happened. But uh, um, looking forward to it, uh, I haven't. It's one of those authors where it's like, man, I, I really should have gotten to this by now. Um, so happy we're at least approaching it. As a follow-up to our interview, um, I don't know what I was getting The Stranger confused with, but I have not read The Stranger. So I'm thinking um, The Three Musketeers is pretty short, if I remember correctly. In the next couple of weeks, I'll have read that, too. So I'll, have, I'll probably have some thoughts on that for the, for the podcast as well. Yeah, that was, one of those, uh, that was one of those books. I don't even know what to say about it. Um, yeah, definitely worth a read. I'd be interested. I feel like it's the kind of book that um has a different effect on you depending on when you read it not like a coming of age book that only makes sense when you're like <laughs> hormonal and stuff but like you know at, in your early 20s your brain is still developing uh at some point you you're you're you probably start deteriorating and and i wonder what <laughs> which stage i'm in <laughs> you're probably closer to deterioration than anything i'm well into it my friend <laughs> so i'm wondering like just like because of, of, you know, the the level of experience you have in life and, and the knowledge and, and all that stuff, is that going to have an effect on your impression of the book? Or if I read it again now, as opposed to like 15 years ago when I read it, would I think differently of it? So maybe I'm, it's, it's the Chuck Palahniuk thing. <laughs> yeah, I was just I was, <laughs> so I was thinking that when you started. I was like, this, and if some, nobody, if anybody doesn't know what he's talking about, um, when Palahniuk wrote the introduction to Burnt Tongues, I think it was. Correct. He was talking about if you read a short story that you don't like, that it's perhaps not the fault of the short story. <laughs> it's where you are in life. So you should come back and revisit that shitty short story <laughs> sometime later and see if it affects you differently. Yeah. I mean, Rob, I know I just said that we're doing the Three Musketeers, but God damn it. This makes a really compelling argument for doing The Stranger instead. No, no. Three Musketeers. Done. All right. Yeah. But you had said, like, you're wondering if you read it, too. And I was like, oh, well, maybe. Well, 
no i mean you're gonna read it anyway and then we'll just talk about it (laughs) yeah all right fair enough (laughs) um so that's gonna be your next episode coming up in about a week and uh that's it that's all i've got um that should be it for me too so thanks for listening to uh our interview with Les. go right now even before you give us a dollar a month on patreon and pick up a copy of adrenaline junkie it will not fail to entertain you it is such an interesting book um and it's a roller coaster there's the ups the downs there's the unbelievable stuff there's the really sad stuff um and it's just great so you should definitely check pick up a copy of that I didn't want to tell Les I cried like a little bitch reading that stuff towards the end. Dude, I cried like a little bitch when he was explaining on the interview all this stuff <laughs> about his daughter. Oh, my God. You know, Les is, Les is listening to this right now, and he looks over at He's like, I knew these guys were a bunch of fucking pussies. <laughs> that's, that's exactly. That's his, yeah, exactly. The nicest pussies I've ever talked yeah. to on a podcast. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Until then, I'm Olivia Snudden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.